Hey, it's your old pal Slim, and you're listening to Faves, an upbeat talk show about our favorite things. In this episode, famous cartoonist Jim Rugg joins the show to talk about pro wrestling and comic books. And I've seen people on message boards describe, you know, superhero comics as basically guys in tights wrestling in an alley. You may know Jim from his Street Angel comic, Rambo 3.5, or cartoonist Kayfabe on YouTube, which he hosts with Ed Piscor. We talked wrestling roots in the South, its many parallels to comics, wrestling personas, and his thoughts on Rambo 5. Enjoy! Wrestling nowadays is like considered this like show where the fans are in on it. But back then, there was like that mystique where you didn't know. Do you remember what your first wrestling match was that you saw and, and how you felt when you watched it? No. <laughs> my my family uh, did not want me to watch wrestling. I was a little kid whenever I started watching it, so I was probably eight or nine, maybe seven. I can remember Jim Duggan and Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov fighting like on a Saturday morning because you know wrestling was broadcast differently, mm. and and a lot of blood happening. And as a little kid, it was like this horror movie that I was watching. <laughs> so I don't know that it was my first you know, my first memory of watching wrestling, but it was one of those vivid memories of like, what is going on here? You know, and just captivated my imagination from, from that point, because you, you couldn't take it apart. Like I think my parents implied that it's fake or it's, you know, it's not real or something, but you're seeing this guy like slammed into the rail or hit with a, a two by four and bleeding. And it's like, well, h- how's this fake? Is this, you know, is there a blood packet somewhere? I don't yeah. understand what, yeah. How is this even legal? Yes. <laughs> and it was funny because it would it would be Saturday morning, you know, it was almost mixed in with cartoons. And it was it was very raw back then. Now, WWE's very PG and it, you know, you could probably show it to kids on a Saturday morning. I don't know if there are even cartoons on Saturday mornings anymore. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that was clearly like a kid's programming block, except there's pretty violent wrestling happening. Yeah. And I was thinking back to about how wrestling kind of in its heyday was like all testosterone a lot of comic books is that way and when i think about wrestling and then comic books i feel like there should be a logical transition happening both ways but it doesn't always feel like that's the case do you see that as well or do you see a lot of comic fans and wrestling fans that kind of started the same way or are they both separate to you there's both and it surprises me whenever somebody draws a hard line like i love superhero comics but i hate wrestling and uh, Rob Liefeld, you know, is, is a guy I'm kind of friends with, and he does not like wrestling at all. And it's kind of like, I don't I, I don't understand the hard line. I can see maybe not being that into it or, you know, not finding a character you like or something. But the distinction, like you say, I think there's a lot of parallels between the two. And I've seen people on message boards describe, you know, superhero comics as basically guys in tights wrestling in an alley. So, <laughs> I mean, it, visually, it's almost the same. It's like a male soup. It's a male soap opera, whether it's comics or wrestling. Yeah. When you go back to the image heyday, I mean, you're literally looking at, at a wrestling match or <laughs> like a wrestling match in an alley. Exactly. Like you said, any of Liefeld's stuff, like you would have, you wouldn't be wrong to think that Rob was like watching wrestling in the background while he's drawing these books. All high spots. <laughs> exactly. The, the right. Early image books. <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh, one of the potential topics we talked about was like the rock mankind feud. And I I went back to rewatch a bunch of it just kind of to bring myself back to that era. And around that time, 
there was like this uh, famous era where they did halftime heat, where they did like a halftime show during the Super Bowl. It was an empty arena match. Right. And also around the time they did the I Quit match. And when talking about like violence in comic books around like the 90s, man, have you watched that I Quit match recently? It is so violent. It was almost unsettling. Is that the one that's featured in Beyond the Mat? Yeah. The chair. Yeah. All the chair shot stuff. Brutal. And then, you know, especially now that we know so much about head injuries and post Chris Benoit and all of this stuff, it's it's pretty tough to watch that. In comic books, there's like these larger than life characters that, and creators now that people attach to. Who were the larger than life wrestlers that you kind of followed over the years and gravitated to? So the first wave was definitely WWF 80 stuff. So it would have been Hogan and Ultimate Warrior you know, that that group. And then I would see a little bit of the Southern wrestling. So, you know, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, basically the big 80s guys, Sting, mm-hmm. you know, all those guys I, I enjoyed. And then I drifted away for a few years, similar to comics. And I came back in the 90s and it would have been with the Attitude Era guys. So, you know, Stone Cold, The Rock, Mankind, Undertaker, um, you know, all, all the guys that you would think of. And then I drifted away from that and I got back into it through listening to podcasts and storytelling on podcasts. And there have been a lot of great podcasts, you know, featuring wrestlers or ex-wrestling personalities. Bruce Pritchard's Something to Wrestle With is a, is a standout. Um, Stone Cold's podcast is probably one that got me back into it. And then like my favorite was Roddy Piper. And I really, really fell in love with with his character through his podcast. And when he died, man, you know, it was like, he was still podcasting up until that, that time. And it, it hit me hard. And I had like, I don't know, 50 podcasts or so of his that I had not listened to. And I would very slowly try to listen to just like, just one at a time, you know, one, one per day or whatever to try to stretch it out. What were some of the things that Roddy kind of covered in his podcast that maybe you wouldn't get from just being a mainstream viewer? Well, he typically featured a guest, you know, another wrestler usually. Sometimes somebody like Ronda Rousey showed up on there when she was still in MMA. Uh, Sometimes people behind the scenes, but mostly other wrestlers. And what I responded to was just his attitude. Like he's constantly telling people, I love you, man. And he just had this positivity and super high energy. And I found both of those things like captivating. And, you know, it just felt like a guy that lived life to the fullest and who knows what he was like, you know, off microphone and what he was like 30 years ago. You know, he had a pretty rough career, rough character, but it seemed like he was a guy that, I don't know, appreciated where he was, what he had gone through, relationships that he had built over time and some that he was trying to repair on air. You know? <laughs> um, and, and there was, I think wrestling, especially for those guys that come through maybe the seventies and eighties and, and even into the nineties, like that was a really hard life. And so you would get some of that would come through in the stories that he would tell, especially with fellow wrestlers from that era where, you know, it was these two guys that had traveled a rough road reminiscing, you know, and they, they had made it this far and they were sharing memories and it, I, I don't know, there was just something about it that was very genuine and yeah. <laughs> which is the ultimate part of wrestling, you know, like the, the, <laughs> the greatest moment in wrestling is that blurred line of like, is that real or is it not? And Piper's podcast really had that. Most of his podcast existed in that realm because he was such a big character. So it was hard to tell, like, when is he, you know, what are we seeing here? You know, it was yeah. always a show, but but you would see these glimpses that felt real, even if they were kind of filtered through his persona. And it's it had to be hard for 
people from that era too because it's so different than now where you see wrestlers on social media being themselves or close enough to themselves interacting with fans. Back then, they had to live the persona. They couldn't, quote, break character. And mentally, that's got to be so tough for decades to not be able to interact with people kind of like as yourself. And then now they have an outlet, whether it be a podcast or otherwise, where they can they can share stories publicly, you know, for the first time in like decades. Yeah, I kind of wonder if we as people are moving closer to the wrestling model because of social media and stuff where we're putting a persona out as opposed to the wrestlers moving closer to, uh, you know, a truer persona. Mm. One of the things I, that's, you know, you mentioned the wrestlers struggling at that time, whenever it was more kayfabe and imagine not just having to keep your persona intact at all times, but if you were a heel and your persona was one of like, everybody hates my guts and now I'm going to walk around at all times, you know, trying to make sure that everybody continues to hate me. And I think that's something that would come through like in Piper stuff. And I listened to uh, Jim Cornette, who was a longtime heel manager in, in Southern wrestling. And, you know, he's been everywhere. He went through WWF and stuff, but he does a podcast now. And he was active in that era where they talk about like, it was dangerous to go to your car as a heel, you know, like people would be waiting for you after matches. You never really, you know, your head's on a swivel whenever you're at the ringside because people are throwing things at you that, you know, batteries and cans of beer and the really great heels all have stories about being attacked by fans and stabbed. And, you know, some of them have gun stories like mm-hmm. it's it's unreal. It's not even that long ago. To no. like comparatively, it's not that long ago where people really hated these characters and, you know, bought into it. And I have a, I honestly have a hard time thinking back to how I viewed wrestling because do you remember on like CBS or NBC, they, they showed this two hour documentary on like the secrets of pro wrestling revealed or whatever. And yes. I think that was the first time, I don't remember how old, maybe I was like 12 or something, but that was the first time where they showed that like wrestling is fake and this is how they do it. And I remember specifically a wrestler getting thrown into the audience or something and an old lady like being hit or yelling at the wrestler. And they really <laughs> played it up because they like zoomed in on the grandma and she winked at the wrestler as if to say like, I'm in <laughs> on it. Like, okay, we get it. That's a little too on the nose. But that was honestly the first time when I learned that the wrestlers were like talking to each other during the in the ring, planning things out. And I don't know, that's like a lost era, I feel like. The, the, like the shift between buying in and then learning that it's fake. I wonder what that transli- transition was like for people, especially in the South, where like in the South back then, you know, wrestling was life. Yeah, Cornette talks about that a lot. You know, like he hates these guys. He, he hates that brand of wrestling where there's almost no attempt, you know, at realism whatsoever, which again is another parallel with comics, that whole idea of, post watchmen was like realistic superheroes which were still completely absurd and ridiculous but that was the term that got grafted onto it and wrestling has that same quality where you know now everybody just knows it's fake and kind of knows those secrets but it's for wrestling you know long time wrestling people that's uncomfortable you know and you would see it with some of the old timers whenever they would do shoot interviews and they would be very uncomfortable being honest and and sort of talking openly about these secrets, but it came to pass, you know, like everybody did it. Even Luthes did it in his biography at at the end of his life. So 
Bruno San Martino kind of clung to that, you know, like he was one of those guys that hated to acknowledge the 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 truth, I guess, <laughs> behind mm-hmm. behind the facade. When I talked about a little bit ago about how like podcasts were like an outlet, they, these wrestlers did have an outlet on the tape trading scene, which was these shoot interviews where they, you know, an interviewer just plopped a camera in front of an older wrestler and they just asked them questions on camera and they talked about like road stories. You know, wrestling fans love hearing road stories about like various hijinks these wrestlers get into and like the the interesting backstories on these famous uh, wrestlers and stories. And I thought I, I loved that Cartoonist Kayfabe, your YouTube channel, you guys have started to do like literally the exact same format that, you know, <laughs> I was tape trading as a kid, which is a camera plopped in front of a creator. You know, you or Ed behind the camera asking questions for like two hours. And I love that. Like, it is like exactly what I'm seeking for. What kind of feedback did you guys get on that format? Because I guess to maybe a, a good portion, maybe a small portion of comic fans, that kind of interview style of like long form, just Q and A is very different than what they're used to. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the kind of feedback we would get. If you were familiar <laughs> with wrestling shoot interviews, cool. We've seen this before. It makes sense. Everybody else is like, why aren't you guys on camera? How do you just point a camera at this guy? This, this doesn't look right. You know, and it's, it's funny. The reaction is exactly what you would, you would expect and what you've described there. Um, you know, if we do more of them and, and we intend to do more, we're actually planning to do several this upcoming weekend. We have a show in Charlotte, uh, Heroes Con, and we've lined up a few cartoonists already that we plan to sit down and talk to that way. Um, but it's a great format. You know, like wrestling is it's it's such a good storytelling medium and those shoot interviews are no exception. One thing that's been lost in the wrestling business, or at least it's been diminished with WWE's current product is that these guys used to have to build their characters themselves, and that would be part of what you would get. It wasn't just, oh, this guy can you know do flips or jump around the ring or has some cool move. It was also, you hand him a microphone, and he's distinct and charismatic, you know, and drives down the road working on what he's going to say into that microphone. So almost like when comedians started podcasting, and it's like, oh, of course, these guys are their professional job is microphone in hand. Mm. That was part of the wrestler's professional job too. So whenever they started doing the shoot interviews, you know, it's a whole new genre almost of interview that pops up because you have these, these guys who are very experienced talkers with incredible stories to tell. And it was perfect. That's all you needed. So I think it's a good format. And, you know, cartoonists are storytellers. So Ed and I kind of believe it's the same deal. You know, you get these guys talking, you get them comfortable and then let them be storytellers and talk about their experience making comics and being cartoonists. Plus the fact on those like shoot interviews, nobody really cared who was on the other side of the camera. They just only cared about the wrestler too. So, and I think they recognize that fact as well. You're not losing anything by not seeing me on camera. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bringing anything to that party. When I think back of me using the internet to growing up wrestling, quote, dirt sheets, like the websites that kind of talked about the inside of the business. Those were like the first reasons I think I remember getting online and going to websites like onewrestling.com was like, you know, the, maybe one of the first websites that I ever found myself going to. So it's, it's crazy to, to like track one's life just by like how I use the internet versus like how I track to find out more information about the wrestling scene. And now with WWE mainstream, it's like all internet and for better or worse like they're you know for the monday night raw shows and smackdown like they put everything online in video form seconds later 
uh, in GIF form. And it's starting to kind of almost like have a reverse effect for them where, you know, you almost don't have a reason to watch. You can just live on the internet and catch up and not ever have to watch it. So that's a huge other change from when we both grew up watching wrestling. Yeah, I think a lot of sports have experienced that where the highlights of the game are better than sitting down for four hours and watching the game. And especially with WWE, Vince has made such an effort for that to be sports entertainment. They're, you know, having feeling the same effect where you're right. Rather than watch raw and watch commercials and promos you're not interested in, you can just catch highlights or reviews or watch the one segment that everybody's talking about. You know, I don't know whether that's good or bad. I, I Who knows? You know, I mean, they like to point out that, that WWE is more profitable than it's ever been. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, these are, <laughs> these things are above my pay grade. Sure. And WWE is viewed as like the Marvel slash DC of pro wrestling. But there are the images and the fanographics of wrestling. Did you take to any of the smaller companies in wrestling like you have historically with comic books? Mm. Not especially like when I was a kid, I, I I went through a phase where I just loved wrestling and there was a, a fair amount on like AWA was still around. There was NWA, WCW, there was world class. Like I saw Stone Cold when he was in world class with gentleman Chris Adams, mm. uh, you know, and, and UWF, you know, like there was a lot of stuff that was available in the early days of cable in terms of wrestling. And so I loved that. I watched all of that. And then like, I'd be at the grocery store and while my mom's getting groceries, I'd be at the magazine rack, just pouring through wrestling magazines, yeah, which were their, their, their own version of, you know, like those are practically comic books. <laughs> and it's funny to hear how made up that stuff was because now, you know, like Bill Apter, one of the reporters and editors of a lot of those magazines has a podcast, you know, everybody that's ever done anything, you can find more information on them. And you find out like those magazines were just all made up. Yeah, You know, these weren't the dirt sheets. These were like, we're just selling magazines. So get some bloody photos on the cover and make up stories about whoever the popular wrestlers are inside. And, but as a little kid, I loved that stuff. And then as I, you know, like, as I drift in and out of wrestling, like I got interested in it, like I said, a few years ago through podcasts and people talking about storytelling and wrestling. And I was trying to figure out like, how does that work for action comics. You know, I want to do a fight scene. How do I put story in that? You know, and a lot of wrestlers would talk about story in their matches and in the actual wrestling. So that's what drew me back into it. And then, like you said, it's all over the internet. So I had some awareness of like new Japan. Mm. Um, and I've been very interested in all elites rise yeah. because those guys are YouTubers, you know, like part of my interest in doing a YouTube channel was watching the young bucks and, and those guys build a following through making their own promos essentially. And it was like, that's fascinating. Like they're now pro wrestlers, but also YouTubers. And so I find that stuff all really interesting. You know, like Chris Jericho, I think in the last couple of years has been fascinating with his reinvention. Um, you know, he, he's one of the most successful wrestlers of the last 25 or 30 years. And weirdly his last couple of years might be his best run. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's so incredible. Strange. You know, he couldn't do without some of those uh, non-WWE wrestling brands. And uh, as a result, like it shines a spotlight on, you know, it makes me interested in what they're doing. Um, you know, New Japan was on a cable channel I had access to, so I would watch some of that. And guys like, like Kenny Omega who have a reputation, you know, I was curious to see what was going on in those other places. Yeah, you can see a pretty clear parallel to Marvel um, being WWE and 
you know, AEW, All Elite Wrestling being like the image of the 90s, except for modern times. Like, you know, they've had enough in the in the mainstream corporate world and they're going to do it themselves. I agree 100 percent. Absolutely. I mean, the build up to they just had a recent pay-per-view, um, the build up between two of the wrestlers, Cody Rhodes and his brother, Dustin from WWE, like they put money behind this video to promote their match. And it was like a million times better than anything WWE has put out in the last 10 years. And they're just, I, don't, it, it, I guess it, it probably is hard to break that corporate mold. And like WWE does everything one way f- every week f- for years, but it's a really exciting time. And I can definitely see those parallels between the nineties and now um, with all the wrestling. It's, it's a, it's a great time to jump in at like a starting point, quote unquote for wrestling. Yeah. And there are so many good stories. You mentioned Cody Rhodes, whenever, uh, you know, his, his father, Dusty Rhodes, one of the all time legendary guys, after he dies, Cody asks for his release from WWE because he's unhappy. He's been there 10 years. He's unhappy with kind of how they use him. They let him go. And it's like, imagine being him at that moment and, and thinking like, well, now what do I do? You know, there was no AEW then there was nothing obvious. And I remember, I think shortly after he left, he released a list of like, Mm. this is what I want to do in the first year, you know, and it was people he wanted to wrestle and different promotions he wanted to compete in. And it's been pretty, you know, like it's an amazing story. Like you follow him through this and it's, that's, that's a great story. Um, you know, another interesting story is, uh, Billy Corrigan, the smashing pumpkins. Mm Mm-hmm front man he had been involved in tna you know he's a wrestling fan and very successful rock star after that falls apart he buys the rights to nwa which is you know like the the historical wrestling professional wrestling conglomerate that kind of fell away in the 90s he buys the rights to it and he basically creates the brand as like an internet brand where you know he has the championship and he has the historical claim to this title and what it means and works with different promotions and different wrestlers to kind of like shows and then broadcast them online. The craziest thing to me in those videos was that everyone walked in draped in a blanket from half double design, not your granny's crochet. Amanda's ready to make your custom hat, scarf, or a totally new custom order, and you won't regret it. Halfdoubledesign.com for more. So... There's a lot of those good stories. You know, the current hot one, I guess, is John Moxley, uh, formerly Dean Ambrose, lets his contract run out at WWE. One of the most successful guys they have has had all their championships, uh, just doesn't re-sign with them because he's unhappy with that system and goes on to, you know, a little mini podcast tour (laughs) and just kind of lights the wrestling internet world on fire as he talks about why he wanted to leave WWE and what, you know, what his experiences were like there. And the first thing he did, the minute that he was released from his contract or when the contract expired, he had a video ready to go that he had worked with the Hollywood filmmaker to produce, puts it on Twitter, like 12.01 AM, you know, the, the day after his contract is over. So it's interesting times, you know, I mean, it's that stuff, to me is the tradition of wrestling where wrestlers were making their own promos and their own characters. And then you lose that a little bit with the current WWE system. I sometimes wonder, uh, often whenever companies are built, the person who builds the company is not the person to run the company. Once it reaches a certain level, Mm. 
you know, it's a different mentality for building something than it is for like maintaining a huge company. And I wonder if that's Vince McMahon's problem, you know, like he's a guy that famously micromanages, but at this point, WWE is so massive. I don't know that that's how you run it. I mean, I don't know anything, you know, like it's stupid for me to sit here and say this kind of stuff and on one hand, but there are models of this, like in the corporate world in terms of CEOs and sort of like how these, you know, companies at different ages function. And as you hear these stories, you have to wonder, I, you know, that's where my mind goes. I, I can pinpoint various highs and lows in wrestling where I was either like super into it or was when I was in college and I just kind of have a passing memory of those eras. What, what were like some peaks and valleys for you where you kind of like drifted off and what, what like was a, a specific area where you came back? The nineties, I remember coming back, you know, the attitude era, as I mentioned, and that was in college too. So like my roommates were into it and stuff. Um, you know, those guys were just, it, it, I've heard people describe WWE's history as like WWE in the eighties was like that kid friendly, you know, rock and wrestling and there were mm. cartoons and stuff. And then like the, attitude era was almost the uh like the teenage rebellion age and and it really you know like that held true like i was that age you know i was 18 to 20 and it was perfect guys were profane it was violent they were funny and smart asses and anti-establishment so that was a that was a pretty big time and i think the rise of like wcw around then too helped because now you like you know you you had you had groups, you, you could almost align which wrestling organization you liked. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that was a very prominent time, I think. And I drifted off after that. So that's the biggest one I can remember in terms of like really being impressed by the characters and interested in them, you know, and finding it the most entertaining. I've heard wrestlers talk about how like it's not about the match. You know, it's it's totally about promos and it doesn't really matter how good the matches are. And I think there's some truth to that, uh, as a, you know, from my point of view. So like whenever the promos are better, I tend to be more interested And in, you know, right now they don't happen to be that good, but the podcasts are. So I end up listening. I'm much more of a wrestling fan that doesn't watch wrestling. If it, you know, you know yeah. what I mean? There's so much other ways to kind of understand wrestling and get into it. I read a lot of wrestling biographies, for example. Who's the, who's the best biography you've read recently? I read Brian Pillman's biography recently, and it was pretty good. Uh, mm -hmm. Flying Brian Pillman, the uh, loose cannon, I think they called him. Mm -hmm. There's some interesting, you know, like he had a he had a an incredible story where he basically talked his way out of a contract, and according to you know like the book and his side of the story, he did it. You know, like he tricked Eric Bischoff into letting him go as part of a storyline, and I'm making air quotes, <laughs> but it enabled him to then be a free agent when he was like the hottest he had ever been. And whenever WWE and WCW were really competing neck and neck for talent, uh, which is genius, you know, he was an undersized wrestler and just he would do things and develop this uh, reputation for being crazy and and like legitimately unhinged or whatever again blurring the line uh you know between mm -hmm. what are we seeing what's real what's scripted and so uh that that one was pretty good i grew up right outside of philadelphia so ecw's heyday was what i would watch every week i was recording those on vhs tapes trying to watch scripted lines of pay-per-views at the time and i remember there was a period of time where so many 
stars came through ECW, this little local Philadelphia promotion, yeah. like Pillman and Austin, right before he went to WWE, Jericho, Malenko, Guerrero, and fascinating history. It, it really an amazing history. And it's been talked about kind of to death in the mainstream, but like now having been removed since like people are probably tired of talking about ECW, it's still insane how this small company was able to get and sustain so many stars for, you know, short bursts of time. It really is. It's, it's talent rich and it's very influential. You know, Austin came through there and just did a couple of promos and I, I watched his promo not too long ago and it's one of the best promos like there is. And it's mm -hmm. incredible to watch it now because it's, it's before stone cold was a thing. And, you know, he's talking about his frustration at WCW and the way he was used there and the way he was kind of buried there. And it's an amazing promo and it's everything that he went on to become is in that promo. Yeah. It's amazing. And and there's great stories around that with, uh, I think Heyman told a story on a podcast how Austin was, he was injured. So he wasn't wrestling at the time, but Heyman recognized his star power. And so they were all shooting promos one night and he told Austin, you know, like you can shoot your promo and then take off or whatever. And, uh, and Austin didn't want to do that. He said he would sit there and watch everybody else's promos so that he knew what he needed to, to beat. And it was like four o'clock in the morning or something because it, he waited until the end, you know, to sit down and really cut this promo. And it's incredible. It's, you know, it's, it's chilling whenever you watch it, especially thinking of what he went on to become. And I was just looking back. I remember me being a young wrestling fan, being bummed that he wasn't in ECW longer and I think he did wrestle like maybe two matches in ECW. I think he had a championship match, like a three-way with Sandman and Mikey Whipwreck, which, you know, <laughs> saying out loud is so insane. <laughs> and he ended up losing. And I was like, oh, man, I'd love to see him be the ECW champ. And then he was gone shortly thereafter. But man, yeah, a, a historical footnote that will be remembered forever, pretty much for wrestling. It's interesting in ECW is, is Terry Funk coming through. Mm. Like Terry Funk's one of those guys that, that you know, I have a place in my heart for just such a history of wrestling in that guy you know he's in his 70s now and i saw like his wife recently died and it, it makes me feel so bad because you know he seems so dedicated to his wife like he gave up the nwa championship because his marriage failed and mm. it was like his effort to you know put his marriage back together which he did um you know and wow. then like he pioneered all that hardcore wrestling in japan because it was a way to spend more time with his family and be on the road less but the key was he had to get over. I always love the way these, you know, like that's something I think I think about a lot is is the idea of getting over. Like, how do you become that popular guy? How do you get fans interested? And you see examples, of, you know, like wrestling, it's very blatant. Guys trying to do this and mm -hmm. the necessity to do this. And I always think of like Terry Funk and those death matches in Japan because it's like, that's how you get on the cover of the magazine. You know, <laughs> it's it's a split second. So like you be the most compelling image and if that's wrapped in barbed wire and bleeding all over the place, that's how you do it. And it's like, Funk was smart, you know, like, I mean, he's second generation guy. Wrestling was in his in his blood and uh, he did what it took, you know, like he changed wrestling because of that. I was trying to think of who in comics had, I, I can think of a few comic creators that, like you mentioned earlier in the episode about how they have a persona and they like live up to that persona. You never really see the true person. And I can see that happening in comics where people try to quote, get themselves over, you know, become someone so that they'll get more work more people will follow their work. You can, you can really see that. I don't know if we have a Jim Cornette esque character in comics necessarily, but I wish we did. We definitely have some of these guys, 
you know, that are maybe just naturally they have that type of character, some larger than life character. Alan Moore springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early days of the Internet, I remember I felt like Grant Morrison was was very conscious of what he was doing, like boosting that sig- sim- signal, but also crafting his persona. Um, I think Paul Pope used to do that, like in his self-published books, he would always run really cool photos of himself and have like some awesome text pieces and stuff. And it just seemed like a guy who was conscious that he was, he was, he was probably inspired by, you know, writers and artists that he liked and following suit, but it was also crafting this character beyond the characters in the stories. Mm. You know, I, I think that happens a lot. You know, I think Chris Ware has, has kind of a persona. I don't know how carefully he's crafting it, but I think that it's pretty distinct and comes across in, you know, interviews and media and stuff. Who are your top five wrestling jobbers of all time? <laughs> jobbers. <laughs> Jeez. You guys call them out often in uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe, and I feel like I, I love those jokes. I always laugh to myself, thinking to myself, like, man, 10% of their viewers probably get that joke, but it still makes me crack up at my desk. <laughs> and, like, in uh, wrestling terms, jobbers are people that, you know, these guys are pulled off the street. They're, their only job is to lose and make the other wrestler look good. So, historically, there's these, like, great photos of pro wrestlers that just look like they pulled off the street put in tights and they've never wrestled a day in their life and they have this like backstory about that but it always cracks me up there there are some great ones there's one in wwe now and he won the tag team belts at wrestlemania and his name is slipping me it's not zach Ryder, but it's a guy who was on a, a losing streak and he had lost like literally hundreds of matches in a row kurt hawkins yes and uh <laughs> It, it was kind of a fun persona and he built that persona like somebody had written an article online about him losing, you know, a hundred matches in a row or something. And and he saw the article and at some point, like the writers had him winning a match and he's like, I can't win. This is my gimmick <laughs> <laughs> and went to Vince McMahon with it. Um, you know, so that that was kind of a, a pretty fun jobber um, mm-hmm. where it was literally his gimmick. Uh, Brooklyn Brawler is probably, um, you know, the classic because he was he was in WWF employment for something like 25 or 30 years, you know, and he was basically enhancement the whole time. And I think he did a lot behind the scenes, but he wrestled a good bit and, uh, you know, never won anything. Yeah. Um, And he did some great podcasts when he finally left WWF. You know, he did some podcasts and talked about a pretty amazing career. I think he even traveled with Hogan and stuff for a while. So. Yeah, he was, you know, he was a full-time wrestler, but not not a winner. Um, I always, as a kid, I loved the Killer Bees, a tag team, <laughs> and they never won the belt. So they weren't exactly jobbers, but they also weren't, you know, they never achieved the success I thought they deserved. I used the WWE Network to go back to the classics. Like, I watched the Chi-Town Rumble. We were talking about Terry Funk earlier, and he was at the end of that. And But going back to watch, like, the full show for the first time, it's so crazy to see you know, the, the mid tier, the low tier wrestlers, this, you know, the C list wrestlers that are on these pay-per-views, like, like the killer V's, or at least I would consider them, <laughs> but it's, it's, fu- it's another funny time capsule. Like, man, whatever happened to these guys, they probably lived the life back then. It's hard to tell, man. Any of those road stories, like you said, are just, it's mind blowing. It seems like half, I, yeah, I was going to make a joke. Like it's surprising. Like most of them, you know, survived, but, but then right. a lot of them don't. So covered hulkamania one thing i'd say about hulkamania yeah it's pretty incredible how long his run lasted and the reason i say that is most of these guys that get really hot 
they burn out quickly. You know, it, it's mm. guys like CM Punk and and Stone Cold and Shawn Michaels. They just can't seem to physically maintain that type of a schedule, uh, you know, and that that kind of, I don't know, pressures, expectations, all of it. And like Hogan really did it for like 10 years. It's a, another different era, too, where like if you go like to the NWO era, that's like, you know, his modern day Jericho reinvention. Yeah. Where he came back as a heel and it was different in that there was many backstage politics at that time where he had like these contracts where he had creative control. He had the pull to say like, I'm not doing that tonight. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And I'll, maybe I'll wrestle for 10 seconds. Like he really guarded himself in TV week to week where he didn't really do a whole lot outside of talk. And when he was on camera, he was very protected. And, but if you go back to watch those long matches, like even with Roddy Piper towards the end or Savage, like those matches are crap. Like oh, yeah. he, he was so exposed in those pay-per-view main events, but on TV where most people watched, you know, he was a star. He was very smart about that, um, but he burned so many bridges along the way. Yeah. In, in, interesting guy, uh, you know, outside uh, encompassing that character and then the real life, pretty interesting story. But, you know, there was no um, there was no roadmap for Hulkamania either. Like there was no equivalent of that beforehand. Uh, you know, that kind of like national and international stage didn't really exist in pro wrestling. Mm. And so <laughs> it's not surprising that he made a bunch of mistakes, but it but it kind of is surprising that he got enough of it right to sustain that level of popularity forever. You know, like he he kind of built modern wrestling and not too many people have shown the ability to do that kind of thing for so long. Plus, he had Thunder in Paradise, amazing <laughs> television show. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that helped his cause or hurt it. <laughs> I remember, like, periodically he would go film something, some terrible TV movie, and he would come back to WCW, maybe pre-NWO. He'd, like, be missing his mustache, and right. he'd have to, you know, burn the cork and, like, put on his, his, like, face paint or whatever. He looked so weird when he was going off doing his TV stuff. Yeah, there's there's stuff where he came back and he'd have a hairpiece in. <laughs> and it was the same deal you know i assumed it was from filming or whatever very bizarre so i know um many people listening uh maybe know you from rambo uh 3.5 satirical <laughs> book that teams up rambo and george bush but what did you make of the new rambo trailer that recently came out hey man they can make rambo movies as long as they want to <laughs> and i am on board <laughs> i'm ready to declare that that a, a holiday whenever the new rambo comes out i'll be there I was secretly hoping, like, it looks, it reminds me of Logan. I think that's what everyone said and sure. has that music. But I was, like, secretly hoping that uh, Sly would take it back to the first one. Like, maybe let's put Rambo in, like, working in a soup kitchen or whatever. Because, I mean, the first movie was, like, very topical and relevant to kind of, like, the military and how they were coming back. I would have loved to see him, like, take it down a few notches, make it, like, super cheap. And make like, you know, someone rob a soup kitchen or whatever. And it's like this, you know, metaphor for how we treat our soldiers or whatever. I'm glad you're not in charge of the Rambo franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to Cartoonist Kayfabe on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts if you're like me and love both comics and pro wrestling. And you want to support Jim and Ed. They have a storefront link to in the show notes along with their channel. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode and you have your phone with you or you're near a computer, share this episode with a friend that you think might enjoy it as well 
or uh, just retweet the Faves account, retweet me on Twitter, or share it on IG. Your help continues uh, to grow the audience of this very podcast, so it's much appreciated, and thanks for listening. Goodbye.